Welcome. Thank you for joining the Wellness Trinity Podcast. I am Dr. Jacqueline, naturopathic doctor and owner of the Wellness Trinity, where we provide natural solutions for modern day wellness. Just a little disclaimer before we get started, what we discuss in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. What you do with the information is to be used at your discretion as recommendations are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases. So before we get started, I have a special guest here. Her name is Kimmy Chang, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapist in California, the Bay Area. We are going to be discussing anxiety and more so understanding anxiety. So I'm going to let her take the stage and explain a little bit more about herself and how she got to this point and why she's doing this. Welcome to the show, Kenny. Hi, it's so great to be here. I'm really excited to, you know, share this knowledge and information. So my name again is Kini Chang. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. And so in California, there are multiple ways you can receive therapy, either through a psychologist or a licensed MFT or an LCSW. So my main role is I work at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital with teens and families. I work in East Oakland with the clinic. And so there's a lot of trauma, community violence, a lot of stressors. And so that's something I treat on a regular basis. I also have a private practice in Oakland where my expertise is in intergenerational trauma. And so just how trauma gets passed down between generations and how it can show up in our lives and our present lives, even if it's historical or previous. I also do a lot of work around plant medicine and holistic healing And so I've definitely been breaking out and looking into more healing practices, such as using nature or animal-assisted therapy in trauma treatment and things like that. So it's a little bit about me. I also, just on a personal level, just I'm a dancer, movement and somatic work. So movement is a really important part of the way I think about healing. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Before we get started on the questions, can you explain to the audience why you got into this practice? Yeah, so I've, you know... I've been in, as a therapist, I've been working for about 10 years now. Prior to that, I've done a lot of work with adolescents and around adolescence development and around sort of brain development and the changes that happen during that very critical time in their lives. And so I really started around working with youth development and then working in like the juvenile justice system and looking at various systems in foster care. And so as I've been working and doing more of this work, I realized the critical importance of that attachment and interpersonal relationship in the healing process. And so I saw that I always knew that I was a healer, but I didn't always know in what way or how I was going to show up. And so as I um, kind of grew into my profession, I realized that that was where the calling is, mm-hmm. that, that interpersonal growth and change and healing others through sort of that process. And so I'm definitely very passionate about it. And I, I think the healing work happens in sort of that reciprocity. So as each of us are interconnected, I think about my role, but also how we're connected to each other. Nice. That's awesome. So let's dive in the question to start off at the basic. What would you describe as anxiety? Yeah, I mean, that's like such a big question, right? Because there's anxiety on the sense of diagnosable anxiety. So anxiety disorders. And then on the other spectrum of that could be something like stress and anxiety. So I think we talk, you know, as a population, as human beings, we talk about anxiety a lot. We're like, oh, I'm really anxious or I'm really stressed. I'm really overwhelmed. And so I think one of the things I want to get out of the way is anxiety as a diagnosis and not getting too much into each diagnosis, but just some distinction, because I think it's important to kind of understand and differentiate and kind of the way we use language too. So within anxiety disorders, there are various forms of disorders. They include specific anxiety disorder, which is specific phobia, I mean, separation anxiety disorder. There's also generalized anxiety disorder. There is social anxiety disorder, as well as panic disorders and agoraphobia. So around categorizing, there's kind of those different areas. And if anyone's interested, you can message me and ask me more about it. But those are diagnosed by healthcare professionals. And so if someone is showing symptoms of these particular disorders, then it's a diagnosable symptom, a clinical disorder. But if that's not what we're talking about, and we're talking about anxiety in the way that it affects, say, all of us in some ways, because all of us experience stress, right, to some level. And sometimes stress becomes exacerbated, that it can begin to feel like anxiety. And so what someone might begin to feel is some of the symptoms, and I think it'd be helpful just to think about it in this way, is symptoms could look like pressure in your chest or difficulty breathing. It can look like bloody palms. It can feel like and look like your heart racing. So just, you know, 
kind of feeling like that pressure and their hearts racing. You can also have these things called racing thoughts. And so racing thoughts are kind of an influx of different thoughts, generally negative. So it might be catastrophizing. So thinking about the worst case scenario that could happen in the situation. So an example, I think examples can be helpful is someone might be doing a presentation and they think, they think something like, I'm going to fall off the stage or people are going to laugh at me or, you know, we kind of go to this place where generally that doesn't happen, but they start having all these thoughts about the worst case that could happen in that situation. So racing thoughts. And then those who experience panic disorder, the racing heart can feel like they're having a heart attack. So a lot of times anxiety disorder patients or someone who's having a panic attack ends up in the emergency room. Even though we don't think, we think emergency room, we think physiological or some physiological um, ailment or something occurring, in their mind, they often feel like they're having a panic attack because their heart is beating so fast and so hard that it feels like it's beating out of their chest. And so I've even had patients talk about it feeling like they're, they think they're dying. Even though it is a mental health disorder, anxiety itself can affect us so much physically that a lot of times people don't even know the difference. They think that they have some physical disorder, but they might actually just be suffering, not just, but suffering from anxiety disorder or panic attack. So there's a little bit about that. Okay, so about how many people are suffering with anxiety in the U.S.? Yeah, it's actually really high. It's about 40 to 44 million Americans a year. That's a pretty high number. You know, and and it's interesting because only about 36% of those folks seek help. And I don't mean clinical help or, but any kind of help. A lot of times we just think, oh, we're just overly stressed. Or we don't know that something might be wrong. And so it's a really, really high number. But the good news is, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes if we're dealing with something like this, we feel like, oh God, we're the only ones dealing with this. And it's interesting, anxiety can manifest. You can look at somebody across from you and they might be panicking and you might have no idea what's happening inside of them. And so oftentimes people feel like they're alone. And so you're not alone, number one. And number two, anxiety is a very, very, very treatable um, illness or struggle. It's something that I treat pretty commonly. I mean, anxiety and depression are probably the top two. And so very treatable. You don't have to just deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good to know that people are not alone in that situation. Because mm-hmm. I think when people think they're alone, it makes the situation way worse. You realize, okay, I'm not the only one. And, you know, maybe there's some tools that we can use come together. And the more I learn too, is the more that it shows how we all need each other too. Um, we can't really do this life alone. And when we yeah. do, that's like a cause for anxiety in itself. You know, it's interesting because anxiety is actually the highest disorder for why people go and seek emergency. It's actually three to five times higher than any other disorder. Just mm-hmm. interesting because you would think it would be something more severe like schizophrenia or something more serious. But I think the reason that's the case is because it is a very common disorder, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, again, people think they are having a heart attack. And so in some ways, I think there's more awareness around it. You know, doctors, most doctors should be trained to be able to tell whether someone's coming in with a panic attack or obviously a heart attack. Uh So the good news about that is it is on more people's radar. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah. So what are some risk factors that might make someone more prone to anxiety? Yeah, I think there's like a number of things and it's really hard to pinpoint, you know, which one or what combination or how much of each, but generally it includes genetics, kind of characteristic traits. I think there are certain people who have, you know, we know this, right, of disposition, a more calmer disposition versus kind of a more, I wouldn't say anxious disposition, but maybe there's somebody who just likes to be doing things more or just has kind of like a higher energy level. So character trait or personality, character, brain chemistry, as well as life events. So different life events that have happened, obviously the more stressors someone has endured or the number of traumatic things that they've gone through in their life, Mm -hmm. it's going to trigger it more likely and they're going to have more triggers and the world is going to feel more and more unsafe. So you're definitely going to, there's something called hypervigilance. It happens a lot with traumatized patients and I'm not, uh, well, which hypervigilance, the idea that you're, it's kind of like always looking over your shoulder, Mm -hmm. always feeling on edge and never feeling settled and always feeling like you need to look over your shoulder. And so that's a way that it might, you know, manifest because of different life events. And so there's, those are kind of four things. Again, it's the brain chemistry or genetics, uh, personality and life events, but it's hard to pinpoint which ones and how they might show up. And if that's what's going to cause it, it can be learned as well. So around genetics, 
there is a predisposition for it, but there isn't a super strong correlation, but there is a predisposition. So it's not enough to say if your parents have anxiety that you'll develop anxiety. It's not that strong of a correlation, but it can sound something like the chances of developing an anxiety disorder is higher than Mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't because some of that's learned. You talk about your parents and the way that they've acted in certain situations. Mm. So if you're used to seeing that and you're learning that in your mind as a child and as you're growing up, you'll think, oh gosh, like that's not a good place or that's not safe or those things are bad or whatever it is. And so if your parents have a disposition or have an anxiety disorder, that can kind of get learned, uh, taught and learned as as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, from a naturopathic side, I'm always looking at the the chemistry of people's body mm-hmm. and people can be more prone to be born with certain neurotransmitters that are lower so they're not going to be as happy maybe if they're the serotonin as well and if, mm-hmm. if they might also be more apt to be stressed as well as the uh, dopamine and gaba any of the neurotransmitters people are going to feel a little bit more on the edge and not be able mm-hmm. to cope really well with life if that's the case. And that's also something that can be a genetic predisposition too. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I get this question a lot and, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner in regards to that, but I work at the hospital. I work really close with them. So we're constantly in conversation about this is what are mood stabilizers doing, right? Like what are SSIs doing? What are MOIs and what are they really doing? And they're beta blockers. So they're talking about the neurotransmitters. So what they're doing is they're actually blocking Blocking the beta, because what's happening, as you know, is that there's a low amount of dopamine or serotonin and sort of those hormone levels, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is it's not giving it enough time to produce those particular hormones that the person needs to feel, say, more resilient to stress or happier or kind of their moods able to be uplifted. So what it's doing is it's blocking it so that it's able to transfer the synapse and sort of shoot over the dopamine so it has enough time to actually grab and transfer into the brain. They have all these pictures and they show all these different diagrams about what's happening with these beta blockers, but ultimately it's not adding, it's not adding dopamine or adding serotonin or adding a hormone. It's a beta blocker so that your brain is actually able to produce and catch up so they could produce it. And so that's what was happening there. And I think that's a question I get a lot. Well, the other side of it too is people's gut is all messed up. The things that they need to to build those neurotransmitters are not going to be able to be built. I mean, people can't be absorb their proteins, which that's part of what builds the neurotransmitters. Then they're not going to be able to build those very well. So yeah. I find a lot of people having deficiencies in things like tryptophan and even tyrosine, and it just affects the whole body and including the mind. You know, we haven't really touched much on the brain. You know, can you explain how the amygdala and all that kind of stuff is intertwined? Yeah. So the two parts of the brain, I mean, there's so many things connected. And as you're talking, everything's interconnected, right? Mm-hmm. But I wanted to specifically talk about the amygdala and hippocampus because those are two parts of the brain that are very greatly affected when it comes to anxiety. So the amygdala is that part of our brain that connects our emotion, sort of like the signals of emotion to our body. And so they're often where we feel, it's kind of our feeling center. So that's where we feel fear. That's when we feel a lot of emotions. And so it's also, we call it the reptilian brain. So it's part of that very center core part of ourselves. And so it kind of started an example a lot of psychologists or therapists use is about how we're developing humans, right? And at one point in time, we were prey to probably, you know, saber tooth tigers and things like that. And so we had a very, we had a larger, probably larger amygdala, and it was definitely very active at the time. Our amygdala would tell us like, run or this is a fear part of your brain like you need to react and so we develop these sensors on knowing how to respond and how to respond quickly to a threat and so at the time that made perfect sense for us right because it's survival mm-hmm. but sometimes what's happening nowadays is if we experience anxiety or we have, have a disposition to anxiety or if we've experienced trauma or a number of very very stressful situations in our lives our brain is then being conditioned to believe that the world is unsafe and that there's a threat and so sometimes we have fear responses or anxiety responses, or Mm -hmm. stress responses to things that are not a true threat, right? Mm -hmm. So even when we think about something that we might feel a little bit on edge about, it sometimes feels like the world is falling apart if we're suffering from anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so it's not matching up to what the real threat is versus what's, what's, what's happening within us to experience it that way. And so that's a very critical part of our brain that's being activated. The hippocampus is 
the part of our brain, and they work hand in hand together, the mood and then the threat. So hippocampus is the threat, the part of our brain that tells us when we're in trouble and that we're in danger. And so it's interesting because the hippocampus, they've shown, and there's multiple studies, you can see them in MRIs, where children or people who have experienced very extreme trauma like sexual abuse or uh, life-threatening situations like multiple natural disasters or things like that, it's shown that their hippocampus can actually be smaller. So physically smaller. That's interesting because I think in the world of psychology, we often think about, we talk about like hormones and neurotransmitters, but we don't necessarily think about it on a biological level, and we call it an organic level, where the physical brain can actually be physically altered. And so they're showing more and more studies show that trauma can actually physically change the size of the hippocampus. So it's possible to rebuild it, right? (laughs) For sure. And the thing is, I'm not necessarily a pusher of medication. I talk about medication like it's an option, but I think there's so many options out there and so many ways to treat um, mental disorders, uh, particularly something like anxiety or depression. And so- And we think about like holistic treatment. And yeah, so even a combination of therapy, building up your resilience, coping skills, even exercising, you know, a lot of different things in combination can actually slowly begin to build it. For something like trauma, therapy is important because of the way that it gets trapped inside wow. our neurobiological thinking pathways. And a way I would describe trauma, and we're talking about anxiety, but I think they often go hand in hand. I think about trauma, if there's sort of like you have a knot in your back and you go to the massage therapist and they like work out that knot. And then so your body kind of has space to, you know, heal it or else it's kind of stuck in that place and and you kind of feel this constant pain. I think about therapy and different forms of trauma treatment, not just therapy, but different forms of trauma treatment as working out the knot enough so your brain can repair. Right. When you go to the masseuse, they work out your knot, but you still kind of feel sore, right? And the blood starts moving, but you need to kind of get like stretch and kind of get it moving. So I think that's sort of one way to describe it. I could really see that happening. So what does normal look like? I don't know. I mean, who's really normal? I think who's really normal nowadays? Like, what does that even mean? I think about normal, like everyone's normal is a little bit different. And so talking like earlier, we were talking about, you know, resilience and how some people maybe have a disposition, a more anxious disposition, but then they can also kind of tolerate, say, multiple activities at the same time, or they're just able to kind of, you know, take on more tasks and not get as stressed or and someone else might be a little bit different. And so I think normal falls within the realm of what you feel like balance looks like. And I think that's where the start needs to happen. What does balance look like to you is often a question that I'll ask. Not so much, and so it's not so much what's normal, but more so what's balance. And and that's the question that I generally will prompt or have people think about. Well, and I think that's kind of an interesting question to ask. I'm sure that could probably change too, as someone comes to you with all this trauma and then they start to heal and unwrap some of the package and you get deeper in their healing and then maybe balance and health looks like a whole new thing to them. Mm-hmm. I find that too, that people's idea of what balance looks like changes during that time. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. So for example, someone who's lived at a level of high stress their whole lives think that that's normal, right? Right. And, and then they don't realize, and so there's some things like that's normal, but not healthy normal. So mm-hmm. then there's that too, right? There's right. that a dysfunctional family is what I come from. And I think all families are like that. But is that good for you? Probably not. So then part of what happens in therapy is something called psychoeducation. It's kind of, I'm doing a little bit of that as well, but right now actually. But psychoeducation is learning about what is healthy. Mm. And generally to live a healthy life, what are aspects of where, where should you be? And so how you can gauge that is, is your heart racing all the time? Do you feel stressed and overwhelmed constantly? And to live at that level is really hard on the body, as you know, and you see in your patients as well. But to live at that capacity, it takes a toll on your body and your body will start to break down. And so then you know, maybe that's your normal, but that's probably not healthy. Then we're talking about moving towards a healthier way, a more balanced, healthier way of living. And you know, to believe it or not, clients and patients have a really hard time letting their stress go. They don't want to let it go. Like they're pretty attached to it. And so they're like, what do you mean? Like, I can't relax. My job counts on me. My family counts on me. Like there's so, there's an attachment 
actually mm -hmm. to some of that anxiety, which is interesting. Because you think, oh, you're really anxious, you realize you are, just let it go. And letting things go is probably the hardest thing I could ever teach a, a patient or client. You know, I think that I can see this happening to people probably that they're afraid of stillness, maybe what it feels like to just pause. Maybe now all that stuff is going to start to come up, other traumas, or maybe your fast paced life is actually a buffer system to actually dealing with some other types of traumas that are really ingrained in them. Yeah, I, I think about it like, for example, defenses. People talk about defenses like they're bad things. And I, I don't necessarily, I more have a neutral stance on it. I think defenses exist for a reason and they've kept, it protected people. Mm -hmm. And so a defense could be constantly doing something so that you don't ever really have to look at what's underneath. And so I would never just take that away from a client because it's worked for them their whole lives. Mm -hmm. I would kind of slowly scale back and then replace. And then as I'm scaling back, and replacing it with things that are actually helping them build resilience and helping them be more healthy. So it's kind of a, it's both happening. It's and, it's both and. Right. Like one yeah. or the other. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's the same thing I do with when I'm working with them on a chemical standpoint. Mm -hmm. You might have all these toxins in your body you got to get rid of, but if you just try to jump in a big old protocol and your body's full of toxins, well, mm -hmm. While your body might need a lot of certain type of supplement or you're deficient in, in a huge way, in the beginning, you might only need to start slowly because you're getting rid of junk and it's not feeling good. <laughs> if, mm -hmm. you, if you do even just a little bit more than the minimum, I could see that totally being the same way with working with your emotions and your spiritual stuff that's going on too. I really love how you explain that. That's very interesting to think about like even on an emotional level, we're so used to this stress, even if we don't like it, to think about trying to take a little bit off and a little bit off is actually even more stressful <laughs> in some ways. That's the sustainability, right? That's what's going to actually create a change that's sustainable. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen where a client may disclose too much all at once, and I've actually had, had to tell them to kind of uh -huh. slow down it's not always good to, to like flood and give everything because that might actually be so overwhelming that they leave and never come back to therapy. And so uh -huh. there have been times where I'll, I'll say like, okay, hold on to some of that trauma, actually. Like hold on to some of what's going on. Let's just take this piece right now. Right. Wow. I don't know why I never really thought about it, you know, in the respect of like what I do and People are like, I see parasites and candy and a fungus. I want to attack it all. I'm like, let me work on your gut. But, you know, we can't get the liver flush in until we get these other like leaky gut signs healed a little bit. No, I totally agree with you on that. And I can see how it relates. Mm. So, you know, I love how you talk about what it goes, what it looks like to go beyond a healthy level. It almost seems like the answer, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is or we're physically not healthy anymore maybe at that point might, might be the solution of like, okay, maybe it's time to scale back. I don't know. What, what would your description of what it means to go beyond healthy level anxiety or stress? So I think when I think about stress too, there is some healthy stress. So something like what keeps us motivated. So for example, we have deadlines on different things that we need to do and things that help us stay organized. Like those things are important. You know, they keep you kind of moving and motivated and kind of on task and having goals, like setting goals for ourselves, you know, those things exist and they've existed forever for a really long time. And they make sense, right? Because mm -hmm. it can induce a level of healthy stress. Right. I think what happens is that we'll start to feel like we, we start forgetting things. So sometimes what happens, I'll see this is we, it's hard to keep track of things. We start forgetting and I've seen it kind of swing between kind of a depressive state and an anxious state. So it might look like pushing too hard and just feeling completely overwhelmed and then giving up and just saying like, forget it. I can't do this anymore. It's too much. I can't handle this. Like, and then just completely collapsing. And so that obviously is an example of being pushed beyond. So it can either look like a collapse and just not being able to do it anymore or the alternative, which is kind of like having a nervous breakdown, which can look like getting really angry, it can go outward. And so it's, it gets polarized. And so what you'll notice is talking back to balance, right? Is that you'll begin to feel some extreme things coming out of you. You will start to be way more irritable. You'll start to, it'll start to come out in ways that it's outside of your character. You'll begin to notice that you feel different and you don't feel like yourself. Mm, and I, yeah. and people need to trust that, right? I think about therapy, like I've no, I know a little bit about 
relationships, how the brain works, behavior, you know, all of that, but you've lived your life your whole life. And so I think in therapy, how I try to work with clients is helping them gauge that. Like, you know yourself, I'm giving you a lot of information to help you, but I'm a firm believer in the work that I do is how to help people tap into their true selves. Like when they're really honest with themselves and they're really connecting with what they need and what's happening, they have access to that voice. And so part of therapy is helping them find that voice so that they begin to know how to do that themselves and not to depend on me forever. I want them to be able to live their life. Actually, that's really interesting. You mentioned that part of what happens when they're a little bit, you know, over the edge on anxiety is to forget stuff, you know, in the midst of that, they need to kind of find that voice. So, you know, what's happening in the body is what I'm seeing is the thyroid. So something that builds a thyroid is tyrosine and tyrosine actually builds dopamine. Tyrosine builds the T4 and the T3 hormones. And when tyrosine is low, people tend to forget stuff. Their memory is not very good and their energy is really not good either. The other thing is on an emotional level, emotional connection, the thyroid tends to have to do with a voice. It's interesting how when people do too much though, their thyroid just tends to get hit and how all those things that you just said, how they are forgetting things, they need to find their voice and all that totally relates with that. And I love that, you know, one of the reasons I love that we're doing this podcast is that historically the mind and body have been talked about in these separate ways. It's totally not true. And I think this example that you're talking about right now in this moment is exactly why they need to simultaneously occur. Like exactly why treatment actually needs to include both simultaneously. Oh, for sure. So I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited that that's direction. And even in medicine, I think it's a direction that's moving Mm -hmm. as much slower in, in like Western (laughs) medicine, but it's happening. And I think this is just another example of that clarity. Right, right. Well, and it's just uh, and very interesting too. I mean, you could even do tests like what I do, the live blood cell analysis and, and see people's blood cells changing with different types of thoughts or mm. um, working with their energy and things like that. And you know, when people are anxious and not happy, I mean, their cells are going to be all stuck together and they're not going to be able to circulate well. I mean, you can feel it on a physical level that people start to pay attention. Uh, when people have fear, their heart's going to be racing and um, their adrenal glands are going to be hit or thyroid. So it's, it's so fascinating to me that how everything connects. And that's why we call this the wellness trinity because it's a mind-body-spirit connection. Mm-hmm. And when we have these things all segregated, we're not really going to get to the root of people's health issues. For listeners, we're looking at doing more podcasts on different topics of this sort, just because it's interesting to share our knowledge on similar topics from these two different sides, from the emotional and, and what would you say, the therapeutic, uh, emotional mm-hmm. therapeutic part, and, and then also on the chemical standpoint too, with naturopathy. So anyway, back to the question. So, you know, tell us a little about anticipatory anxiety. Man, try saying that several times. <laughs> anticipatory anxiety. Anticipatory anxiety is actually a really normal form of anxiety, generally. I want you to think about most things like it's on a spectrum, right? Like most of the things in our lives. And so anticipatory anxiety, if you were to think about it like it was on a spectrum, we we have it all the time. We think like, oh, we're about to take our driving test or we're about to present or a variety of things that require us to kind of the anticipation of doing something that makes us a little bit nervous, normal, right? It's when it's when it begins to inhibit our ability to do the things that we need to or want to do that becomes the problem. Mm. And so it might look something like, like a teenager or somebody or an adult is going to take a driving test and they've been working at it. But the anxiety that they're feeling on the day of the, on the day of the test has caused them then to just not show up. And I see this a lot actually happen in students at school. Like kids will be school avoidant if they don't know information Mm-hmm. or they're not able to catch up with, say, math or something like that, the more that they're not able to catch up, the more anxious they begin to feel about going to school. Mm-hmm. They start to have that buildup happen at home. Mm-hmm. Then they don't even leave their house. First, it was, oh, I can't walk through the school, or I'm just avoiding this class, mm-hmm. but I'm still coming to school, and then it worsens. And so, and that can happen with work, and that can happen with any of our kind of life tasks that we need to do. And so, the anticipatory anxiety sounds minor, right? Like it's this little snippet, but as it, it can grow. And anxiety looks like that. It looks like stress or overwhelm. And then it looks like avoidance. And then it looks like avoidance in multiple areas. And then it be, can become something like agoraphobia, which is when somebody doesn't leave their home because they're so mm-hmm. anxious. And so 
And not saying that just because you're stressed, you're going to develop agoraphobia, not at all. But it's that to notice it when it begins to happen is your access point. And so talking about triggers, um, I didn't get a chance to talk much about triggers. Triggers is a pretty common thing we talk about. And trigger is ultimately the trigger that is causing whatever is going to happen. And so, or the trigger that might cause your anger. So something like anxiety, and in this example with these students, It might be taking out my math homework out of my backpack is a trigger. And Mm -hmm. that could actually spark a a panic attack for some kids who are so anxious about math. And so the math homework then is the trigger that causes the panic attack or something or or high level of anxiety. Flying is a really common one. Um, There's a very high population of folks who suffer from flight anxiety. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily diagnosed, like they're not seeing a therapist for it, but the feeling of flying or going to the dentist. So there's actually a whole gamut of certain daily activities we do all the time or activities we do as part of our lives that actually spark a lot of anxiety. And so the trigger might be buying the plane ticket online. Mm-hmm. And the moment they start to, they're inputting their information, they're like uh, already thinking about the flight, they're already like, you know, like they're getting anxious about it. And so those are the moments where you want to implement some of the things that I'll actually get to in a little bit is different little tricks I'm going to teach to just kind of manage that moment so that we don't get to the point where you're about to board the plane and then you don't get on your flight and then you get all these charges and then you don't see your family for Christmas, right? Like that's, it can become this this catastrophe, but it can actually be managed when you begin to feel the anxiety. So, you know, you also mentioned that there's other causes to like doing something that you don't like transition, change, growth? Um, You want to expand a little bit more on those type of things that can trigger people? Yeah, I mean, change and transition are, you know, part of our lives, right? And there are definitely people who kind of dive in better than others. Some of that, I think, maybe is characteristic or personality trait, but for other people, it's because transitions and change have been probably traumatic to some degree. Mm. They haven't gone very well in the past and in their life. And so what they've learned is that transition or change equals blank, whatever negative thing they have now associated with transition or change. For some people, transition and change equals transformation or equals growth. That's an assumption though. For other people, change equals people are gonna leave me, right? So you gotta think about what that story is and where the association is. Our stories are, so powerful and even though they're just stories they're not just stories they define the decisions that we make so i think change change for everybody brings up some level of you know stress or anxiety but how we move through that can be defined by our life experiences and the things that we've gone through that's such a good point that you make you know i never really thought about people in a transition having a, a more or less difficult time um, adapting just because of maybe they didn't have a good time adapting or something traumatic happened in a transition or change at some point in their their past. But that makes complete sense. I'm sure anyone that's listening to the podcast can uh, totally relate to that and think about like, wow, you know, either way, you could go either way, whether it's good, whether thinking like, you know, I'm a person that I can can move here and there and I'm I'm totally fine because I know like God's got it under control. You know, and then there's the next person who's like, oh my God, I haven't moved in 10 20 years and I don't know what's going to happen because they're not, you know, it's like their faith muscle hasn't built, built up or, or maybe yeah. in the past, maybe they got stuck in that situation because they didn't want to get out maybe because there's something that happened in the past. Uh, and yeah. So that's really beautiful that you're able to work through and, and kind of dig through those type of roots with people. I mean, that's such an art. I feel like it, I really treat it. It's a blessing. I mean, really, because people then are letting me into their lives in a really deep way to support them. And, you know, asking for help is not easy. And so I actually feel very honored when mm-hmm. patients and clients trust me to be able to support them because that is so hard. It's not easy, especially for an anxious individual. You know, right. they're, it's scary. So I actually feel really honored when I'm able to do that. Yeah. How much do you think uh, pride has to do with people's anxiety too. I think it's more shame than pride, to Mm. be honest. And even when I think about pride as a character trait, it it comes from something much more deeply rooted around like pain. 
So, but I, I think, so just talking to stepping back a little bit about shame, I think people feel embarrassed, you know, and, and why I started early away in the beginning of the podcast about not being, you're not alone is because people, I think oftentimes feel embarrassed. Like, I feel like I should have it together or I feel like this is stupid. Why am I, you know, there's this self-judgment. Oh, that self-judgment piece is so harsh, right? I think with people who suffer from anxiety, there's a lot of self-judgment and a lot of kind of harshness and self-criticism. So I think sometimes it's more shame. I don't know if it's so much. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And now you say that self-judgment, you know, because if we're harder on ourselves, if we're really hard on ourselves, like, oh, I have to be perfectionist, I have to be, everything has to be perfect. Then if something is not in line with that, then they're going to feel anxious. <laughs> so I could, I could those, totally see that. Yeah, and those who have perfectionism as a character trait are, anxiety is right there next to them. Mm-hmm. So. I have seen a lot in um, clients and patients who have that perfectionism as whether, for whatever reason, it's, it's part of a character trait that they've developed and often as a defense. And that anxious piece is literally right tagging along. It's almost like they almost go hand in hand. Oh, yeah. Yep. I can tell you that one. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, I'm sure. sure that- I bet you have a little bit of a not understanding yourself, too. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, whenever, uh, you know, it takes some some form of, I think, perfectionism to really, you know, rise up and, and do something big in life. But at the same time, I, I, I know I personally have to learn, too, to be like, okay, it's okay to move on and forward without having all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was hard. I, I was a perfectionist. I came from, a, you know, family with a, we were perfectionists. Everything, you got to have, have everything in a row and perfect grades and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it was more so we did it to ourselves. My mom never pressured me. <laughs> I just innately was like, I have one book point oh and things like that. Mm. So it just kind of carried on to the rest of my life, which actually ended up, I feel like caused some, some health challenges, me losing my hair and things of that sort. And so with that being said, what are some symptoms or not some symptoms, but like um, some things in our health that can happen when people are have anxiety and that's not taken care of and overdone? Some of the things that I see a lot are migraines and headaches constipation or intestinal or digestive issues. I see kidney, well, the heart racing may or may not become more of a physical issue, but if that's happening a lot, you can imagine how much faster, how much harder your heart has, your heart has to work, right? Your parasympathetic system is just, or your sympathetic system, parasympathetic system is just shot. And so you're off. It's, it's that adrenal component you were talking about too, but your adrenals are often completely off the charts as well. Um, muscle tenseness, so body aches, muscle pain, neck tension, which is also sort of the headache component, dry mouth and kidney issues, IBS, which is connected to the um, intestinal as well. So those are often the areas of our body that are physically, directly physically affected. And it can happen very fast. It doesn't even have to be chronic anxiety or stress, but it can actually happen pretty quickly. Wow, that's amazing. One thing that I've learned with emotions, different emotions are associated with different body parts and the the gut tends to be associated with feeling stuck is one of the emotions at least. So it kind of makes sense if you're a perfectionist and you're not getting where you need to go and uh, or something's not in line, you're feeling stuck. Well, that completely makes sense why the digestion might be backed up. Constipation mm-hmm. or irritable bowel syndrome might, just, might start to happen. And then the other thing you mentioned was the parasympathetic mode. I talk about this with my clients all the time that if we see the adrenals or even the thyroid off the chart or a, a lot of symptoms um, or signs in their tests come up for it, I make sure I'm like, we need to tackle this because we need to get the person more into a parasympathetic mode so that their body can heal itself from you know, all the toxins and deficiencies and things of that sort that we're seeing in their testing. So I'll give them adrenal supplements and things of that sort to just kind of calm the person down, and, mm-hmm. um, which totally relates to everything you're saying too. So on a, you know, on a therapist perspective, what are different types of coping strategies? So I thought it'd be pretty cool to do one together if you're open. <laughs> Jacqueline, actually, I would be guiding it, and you'd be doing it to show kind of how to do it. Yeah, sure. It's something. It's something I do. It's called square breathing. It's a strategy of breathing, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about breath in a little bit. But breathing with square breathing is 
one of the number one ways that I tackle anxiety, even, even a pretty high level of anxiety. So if it's okay with you, can I just guide you through a square breathing exercise? Okay, yeah. So I'm just going to talk about what we're going to do, and then we'll do it together. Okay? Okay. So square breathing is you breathe in for four counts, you hold for four counts, you exhale for four counts, and then you'll rest for four counts. And so I'll do it much slower, but we'll do that together, okay? Okay. So go ahead and breathe in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, rest, two, three, four, inhale, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, rest, two, three, four. Yeah, I can totally feel that too. <laughs> okay. So it's called square breathing. So really visualizing a square. Right, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, there's also recently created, an, someone created an app that does the, like helps guide that. And I'm totally, I don't even know how this happened, but I was like, I'm recommending it to patients because it's free. Um, I don't endorse the app. I don't get any money for it, but like, it's a great way to visually connect and not have to think about how to do it. You just follow this app. It's called Breathbox. Um, and so I've been giving it to patients and they just like press the button and it does it for them. So it's a box that actually like expands and slows down and then rotates on the hold. It's really great. Wow. So that's um, square breathing. I use it and teach it to almost all my anxious patients and clients. Um, they find it pretty helpful. Uh, usually it takes about three to four times doing it three to four times because it's just one. Usually the first time it's like just to get you settled. Mm -hmm. And then the next couple of ones begins to kind of slow down that pacing. Um, and really what you're doing is you're pacing the breath. And so with anxiety, the breath is usually also quickened, right? You imagine your heart's racing, so you're breathing really fast. Mm -hmm. And that breathing really fast actually then makes you more anxious. And so anxiety is one of those um, emotional mental health disorders that is so directly tied to your physical body that addressing the physical body is the access point. Nice. And one yeah. of the ways to access the body is through the breath. And mm -hmm. so that's one, that's one way that um, I recommend clients deal with it. Another thing that happens for patients and clients is feeling very hot. So your heart's racing, your body's working you're nervous and you're anxious and you're feeling maybe scared and you're really overwhelmed, you will begin to perspire. You will begin to feel really hot. Um, and so something, again, addressing the physical body is taking a cold towel, um, even putting ice in it or grabbing a cold towel, running it underwater, even splashing um, cold water on your face can really help physically shift the way that you're thinking about what's happening in the morning moment. So what's doing two things is, when you splash cold water on your face, you can't help but feel that you are splashing cold water on your face. You're not thinking about the racing thought that's actually going through your head. So it's doing two things. It's stopping the thought and it's actually physically cooling the body down. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, again, such a simple thing, right? But it's actually incredibly effective. And so um, splashing water, cold water on your face or getting a cold towel, laying down and putting the towel on your head. I say mm -hmm. laying down because you need to put your body in kind of a resting position. And even though you might still be having racing thoughts, if you're pacing, you potentially are, you could be escalating your feelings about what's happening. Mm. It's a little bit different than like anger. With anger, I say like pace because you need to exert energy. Wow. Um, with anxiety, we want to decrease the energy level. So breathing, and I mean, you don't just want to lay there because if you just lay there, the, the thoughts are going to go. Right. So you want to be doing the counting. So what I was counting, I want the patient to actually count because again, what's happening there is it's breaking the thought cycle and breaking the racing thought. If you're counting, you can't count and think about a catastrophe simultaneously. Right. Your brain can't do both. So you're able to, again, be addressing that simultaneously. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that free advice. I love that. Yeah, breathing is so powerful. And I know when people are stressed, their adrenal glands will get hit, but also their lungs will get hit too. So people will find that they start to have lung challenges. And so it's interesting that part of the remedy of what you give them is dealing with something with their lungs. 
So can you maybe give us one or so practices to prevent anxiety? To prevent? Yeah. I think, you know, we talk a lot about how to take care of ourselves. And people can probably list a laundry list of like, go to yoga, go hiking, go do this, take a bath. And, you know, sometimes it feels like it's more work to try to take care of yourself. And I know people who get anxious about having to do things to take care of their anxiety. So I, I'm mindful of actually not giving patients and clients too many things to be like, this week you need to, especially ones who are perfectionists, right? They're going to be like, I got to go to yoga three times a week. I got to go hiking on Saturday. And so one of the things is, I think about it like basic, basic things to take care of yourself. If you're going to choose yoga, something like restorative yoga is more ideal than say mm. another form of yoga. The reason I say that is because restorative yoga specifically is targeting your parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. It's targeting to slow that down. The whole process is actually that. And so if you want to choose something like yoga, you can intentionally choose something like restorative yoga. I think always checking in with yourself. And so going back to that piece around knowing, beginning to learn to your, learn yourself, listening to yourself and um, giving yourself permission to mm -hmm. rest, giving yourself permission, you know, and sometimes I'm that voice for people because, you know, I'm the therapist, but then beginning to develop that voice of um, helping them kind of begin to decompress or, or just rest. Like, when do I need to take a break? Just, it's okay to take a break. All right. So that permission, that self-permission. Yeah, yeah, I find that people need to hear that too. It somehow has been ingrained in our society, I feel like, especially, I mean, we're both from the Bay Area. <laughs> it's just go, go, go. Then you're sitting in traffic for a couple hours every day, and then you got family and this and that. And it's like, you know, we feel guilty. We can feel guilty for, mm -hmm. for stopping because, I mean, the, the rat race just keeps going. But being able to know when we can, that one, we deserve a break. Two, that, you know, to try to actually be able to schedule that in, I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think the key word is schedule, <laughs> because sometimes it's really hard when we're just running around all day. And if we don't have that in our schedule, then it's just, I have no idea when I'm going to get this in and, you know, just mm -hmm. like exercise. So, um, yeah, I, def I built know. it into my day, like into my alarm system. And I think actually the iWatch does that. It'll tell you to breathe. Um, I don't have an iWatch, but I like my husband has one and some other people I know have one and it'll like thing and it'll be like, Hey, Nick, breathe. And it's like, that's pretty cool. Um, but I also kind of build it into my life in my phone. It reminds me to eat, which sounds so ridiculous, right? Like I'm a therapist. I should know how to take care of myself, but even I will put patients first. I'll override my lunch and like see a patient instead. And so I've had to actually build in mm -hmm. my lunch schedule. Right. And I'll schedule it in, I'll block it in, even something like that. And so that's the way to take care of yourself. It's not to wait until you're having a panic attack yeah. or you're having a nervous breakdown, but to have just a couple things. It doesn't have to be a whole laundry list of things. It can be the simple things, the simple things that matter, drinking water. Right. Um, again, really minor, right? But not, it's, it's huge. So drinking water, Sure. sleeping, um, taking time, for example, showering. I know people who will be like, oh, just take five minutes or like three minute showers. And I'm like, it's a shower. Take like a 10 minute shower. It's okay. Unless we're like in a serious drought, but like the simple things that we do to create the space for those, it doesn't have to be a, a ton of other things we're just adding into our lives. Yeah, definitely. So there's so much more that we can talk about on this topic. And I definitely want to address at some point, what do you do about if you live in an area that's just more chaotic than the next stuff like that. But I think we'll save that we'll leave you guys hanging on your, on your, you know, toes for the next one. <laughs> Where can people find you? Um, there's a couple of places you can find me. Um, I have a website. It's pretty straightforward. It's www.kinichang.com. Um, Kinichang, one word.com. Um, I also have a, a wellness Instagram. It's called Wellness with Kini. So that's again pretty easy to find as well. Um, and on my wellness in this Instagram, I post things about essential oils and different kind of plant medicine remedies. I also talk about um, tips and things that you can do. I did like a 30 day 
um, self-love and care kind of challenge. Um, I did like a 10-day essential oil kind of tip and information. And so you, you'll just learn a lot and gain a lot of information and, you know, just helps my patients and clients stay inspired and connected. It helps me stay connected to them too. Um, I also have a mind, body, and soul Facebook page. You can go there as well. And so um, if you're connected with me in any way, you're able to get all of that. Um, so yeah, so those are just ways to get a hold of me, probably the easiest and quickest way. Um, you can call and email and text, but I feel like if you DM me on IG, that might be easy too. <laughs> <for some> <laughs> yeah, so if they go to your website, then they could probably find these social media links too, possibly. Yeah, I think it's on my about me. I have oh, um, like just like links you can click in and find me there. Okay, great. And then um, do you have any last comments? Um, something I didn't mention, I know that um, a lot of people have been interested in is I do wellness retreats. And my wellness retreats are the idea that it like that idea a little bit that we are so busy and talking about anxiety. A lot of people are like, I don't have time to come to therapy every week. And retreats do not replace therapy. Um, so number one, there's that. But you can kind of get a crash course in a couple of days to learn the things that you might want to learn, depending on the theme of the topic, as well as just being taken care of and whether that's nourished through food. Um, I generally have them in places that are very physically and mentally and spiritually nourishing. Mm -hmm. um, that's very important to me. So you're going to feel like you're on vacation, but it's more than that. It's really taking care of yourself. So I definitely right. have retreats coming up as well. Um, and I think actually, if you send me an email or you message me, I'm going to be giving away a $450 voucher to one person for my next upcoming retreat. So wow. you can, that's generous. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you email her. <laughs> so yeah. my, email or, uh, my email is um, Kini Chang, MFT at gmail.com. And send me your name, your email, and what you'd be interested in. So if you're interested in a retreat, if you're interested in learning more about like the work that I do, just ask a question and I'll throw you in for a possible raffle for the extra two, 450 off. Nice. And how long does this last for? Well, the retreat's going to be in March. So I'm going to be doing the raffle maybe Christmas. Okay, great. So... By that time, I Plenty should. Of time, yeah. I should have this podcast up. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely, you know, I won't leave you guys hanging too long. My Christmas gift, you guys. Right. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And um, just so people know, um, Kinny Chang is spelled K-I-N-I, -I, and then her last name C-H-A-N-G. I just want to say thank you so much, and I, that was just you know amazing podcast and just so full of knowledge and insight onto this topic that so many people are suffering with. So thank you so much for your time, Kini. You're welcome. And one last point too, we'll have to talk about doing a retreat possibly together too. We, I've been working on some of that with my colleagues here, so maybe we can collaborate in Las Vegas. Sounds awesome. Make Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally down. All right, so. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening. Have a nice day. Bye. Bye. And if any of you are interested in learning more about having a consultation with me to discover what is at the root of your health and fitness challenges so you can live the best life that you can live and fulfill your callings and purpose in life, please visit thewellnesstrinity.com to learn more about our in-office and distant consultations. So